Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're at the end of chapter 5, looking at the last section there. That begins in verse 17. We focused on verses 17 to 20 last week. Today we're going to focus on verse 21 all the way through chapter 6, verse 2. I don't know how you came in here this morning, whether you're tired, awake, whatever it might be. But these are the topics we get to cover today, so hopefully it'll put some interest in you. We get to talk about the fact that we actually are to judge others. A lot of you like doing that, I'm sure. I like doing that. We'll see how to do it right, but uh, we are going to look into that. Being in a Baptist church, this usually causes some controversy. We also get to talk about wine this morning, so hopefully that will make you interested. And then being in a Southern Baptist church, this is relevant for us, we also get to talk about slavery. That's three wonderful topics this morning. We get to traverse together. And so join with me in doing that. Hopefully we will see from the Word of God what He has for us uh, today. Look at verse 21. I'll read through verse 2 of chapter 6, because this will be our main section today. It says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved." All right, so remember that in chapter 5, Paul's been talking about relationships in the church. We talked about widows a a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and the church's relationship to widows. Paul then switched and started talking about the relationship of pastors with the congregation uh, and the church as a whole. And then we see there in chapter 6, beginning of chapter 6, he talks to those who find themselves as slaves with masters in their relationship especially when they might be church members in a church together and how that would function. And so Paul really hits a a big spectrum of relationships that we find within the church. And so uh, you might find yourself in a relationship with someone in the church that's not exactly this. It's not a widow, it's not a pastor, it's not slavery, but it might be something else. But I, I would dare say what Paul has done is he's really covered the extremes pretty well to give us an idea of how we should relate to each other and handle each other and how we should treat each other. In verses 21 and 22, Paul continues his talk about uh, pastors in the church. Remember, he's, he's talked about compensation. He's talked about uh, protection for the pastors, but he's also talked about rebuking them when they needed to be rebuked and correcting them. But in verses 21 and 22, he talks specifically about who should be included in this position of pastor, and it's very important. In verse 21, <clears throat> continuing this teaching with uh, pastors, he wants us first to see that in doing this, notice how he says it, 
In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. What a reminder this is, that as we deal with church relationships as Christians, how are we doing this? We're doing this in the presence of God. We're doing this in the presence of Jesus, who has been given all authority. We're doing this in the presence of the angels who watch over us. And I think that I hope that that would make this idea of us being in relationship a, a big thing for you. It's not a small matter that God has joined us together as a church family, and we do these things in the presence of God. And, and Paul tells Timothy here, remember, to teach these things, and as you do it, you are doing it in the presence of God and of Jesus and of the elect angels. This is a good reminder for us. And Paul says to keep these rules, and he says to do it in specific ways. He says, so I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Preemptive judgment is on Paul's mind here. And I have to ask you, and I have to ask myself this week, how often do we find ourselves prejudging people? It's really a common practice to call this a hobby. It's called people watching. Uh, You would say it, I would say it, that it's enjoyable to people watch. Some of you go to the Monroe County Fair just to people watch. It's the only reason you go. You don't care about anything else, but you just want to see the people. And what are we really doing when we do that? We're prejudging. We're prejudging everybody. I love finding out when a guy has a wife and I haven't met her. And I just think, what does she look like? And then you have this idea in your mind of what that guy, what his wife would look like. And then you see her and you're usually like, why is she with you? (laughs) You know, that's that's prejudging. That's what we're doing in those instances. But we all do this. We all prejudge we we look at somebody very quickly it might only take a second and we instantly have our mind made up about everything about them when finding leaders in the church Paul's talking to Timothy again about doing that he says you can't do it this way don't prejudge the men in your church because if you do that first of all we have to remember Jesus would never have been picked Jesus himself would have never been picked to fulfill the role of pastor in any church if prejudgment was what was going to be done to pick them. Because there was nothing special about Jesus. We see that in the scriptures. There was nothing to, he was nothing to behold physically to look at him to say, this is the guy. And so most churches would have just got rid of him right away as a candidate. I think I could bring this home even a little bit more with the, pre, the prejudgment and how I think this can, can go astray. I would guess there's some of you that there's restaurants that you just simply will not go to. And it's because you went one time, had a bad experience, and you said, I'll never go back again. You're talking about one meal that they make out of who knows how many, 50, 60 meals. Or maybe you had a bad server, and that's why you won't go back. You're talking about one person who probably hated their job, doesn't want to work there, and you've based your whole life experience on a restaurant because of that one experience, and you'll say, I will never, ever go back again. Have any of you done that before? Yeah. How unfair. How unfair. That always, that's always frustrated me, like in our, in our family. You'll have people, I won't, I won't eat there. Why? I've had their meatloaf. It's disgusting. I'm like, well, they make other things than meatloaf. Tell me their hamburger's not good or their chicken's, something there has to be good. No, but it's just this prejudgment thing that we do. And Paul warns Timothy here 
when you're looking for people to lead your church as pastors, first of all, don't prejudge. But he also says to do it without partiality. He says without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. This is another hard thing to get past, isn't it, of, of playing favorites. It's just built into us. But Paul's encouraging Timothy here. He's saying, don't just pull your friends up to leadership. Don't just pull up people who are going to say yes or, or whatever it might be to you and put them into leadership within the church because the problem is that can get the church in all kinds of trouble because probably the pastor's friends shouldn't be pastors, right? That's not who we should be looking to. And so we shouldn't prejudge when we do this process, but we also shouldn't show partiality because then you start to look over sin because you like somebody. Oh, yeah. But yet in somebody else, that's a, that's a crucial matter that you have to get rid of them for. But with your friend, we can kind of talk through it, right, and talk around it. And we got to be careful with that. When partiality gets in, all of a sudden sin become, can become downplayed. Now, who are we most partial towards? Ourselves. I, I, I speak of this often. I'm not the best uh, patient person when driving. Uh, that's where I find most of my anger comes out is on the road. And I hate it when the light turns green and the person doesn't go. I hate it. Do they not know that I have places to go? I am in a hurry. And I'm like, what are you doing? Talking on the phone? You know, in my head, I'm just going through everything that I can possibly think of. You're probably a thousand years old. You're from Ohio. That's obvious. Right? I mean, I'm just, I'm so ticked about it. And it's only been two seconds. But I'm frustrated. But when it flips, and I'm on my phone, and my wife says, hey, it's green. It's like, who are you? You see how easy that is? I mean, that's just a small little thing to think about. But all of a sudden, I'm being so partial. I'm like, you should forgive me of this. There was something serious. The radio was really messed up. I'm sorry I didn't go right when the light turned green. But when I'm behind the person, I'm very upset about it. You see how I can be so partial to myself where I can even look at my own sin, Tim's sin, but I can talk through that. I can talk through that and explain it kind of a way of why, well, you know, it's just, it's okay. But that person's sin, even though it's the same, much different. This is partiality. And it doesn't have a place in the life of the church. That's what Paul is getting at here. And so he continues on in verse 22 and talking about, and you might say, well, how are you talking about this is, this is calling pastors? It's because I think verse 22 wraps all this together. It says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That laying on of hands is a, is a separating apart of pastoral leadership uh, in Scripture. That's why I had Spencer read what he read on, on Joshua. There was, Moses did that with Joshua. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And so he says, when ordaining these men, when calling these men to this service of pastor, do not be hasty. Now we talked about this in chapter 3 as well, uh, when we looked at the qualifications for a pastor. And you remember I said, I think we kind of have our system messed up of how we hire pastors so often. We gather a team together. We look for resumes. We have the guy come in one time. Some people meet him. We have a guy come in the second time. He stands before everybody and preaches. And then the next week, it's like, hey, you guys need to vote on him. That, you want to talk about hasty. 
That's pretty hasty. You don't know that much. That team doesn't know that much at that point. And Paul here is saying, do not be hasty in doing this. You need to take your time. Really examine the life of the men that you are going to call into the position of leadership in the life of your church. Don't rush to this matter. This is not, a, this is not something we should rush to. Paul then encourages Timothy here. He says, do not take part in the sins of others. I don't, I don't know if Paul meant others were doing this, that they were being hasty in what they were doing. I don't know if Paul is referring to the false teachers that seem to have risen to some sort of authority within the life of the church and people were talking about. I don't, I don't know if Paul's telling Timothy here, hey, don't take part in what the false teachers are doing. But either way, Paul warns Timothy here to, to do what? To stay away from sin. And it, it reminds me, as I read that, it reminds me of Psalm 1. You remember in Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's what Paul is getting at here with Timothy. He's saying, do not take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure, he urges Timothy. Again, remember he was telling Timothy not too long ago, because of his young age, he said, how do you combat this? People saying bad things about your age. He said, live your life faithfully. Right? Be a Christian and be a Christian that is faithful to the word of God, not just in the pulpit or, or not just in the church setting, but in your life so that they look at you. They don't, they don't have anything to throw against you. And it's as if Paul is reiterating that again to Timothy saying, keep yourself pure. It is important that you do that. Pastors need to live a life of purity. Now this is where it gets interesting. Because after talking about living a life of purity, we have here with parentheses around it, at least in, in the ESV, we have verse 23, which really seems out of place, does it not? He's saying, keep yourself pure, and then all of a sudden, he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You see, when we look at this, I don't think there's really a definitive answer as to why Paul has put this verse in here. Some, some scholars say that what this probably was, maybe was a, was a side note in, on, the, on the sides, and then later a scribe took that side note and put it into the passage, and that's why you see uh, parentheses there. Others say Paul would often just throw thoughts into his writings at times that don't really seem to line up, kind of like some of us talk, you know, or just something comes in our head, and we're like, whoa, i got to tell you this a second. Get milk on the way home. It had nothing to do with what we were talking about, but I just need to throw it in here real quick. So some say maybe that's what Paul is doing here, Others say that this lines up perfectly, though, with keeping yourself pure. And the thought line of false teachers, and these false teachers, if you remember, what they were teaching is they were teaching abstinence from certain things. You remember that? We talked about this already in this book. The false teachers were coming in and saying that you had to abstain from certain food. You had to observe certain festivals or different things. And Paul was combating that and telling Timothy to combat that. So some scholars say that what Paul is doing here is he's fighting against this and telling Timothy, hey, Timothy, take that wine and use it for your stomach ailments. Well, probably stomach. I know it doesn't say stomach, but that's what people uh, think it was because wine was thought to help the stomach back then. So again, Paul just told Timothy to keep himself pure. 
And some might take this as going above and beyond in order to stay pure. Again, the false teachers were teaching this about food, about festivals and other things, and Paul spoke out against this. But now Paul is trying to show Timothy that he needs to take care of himself. And to do this, he should drink some wine. Now, there are some who would teach, obviously, even in this time, that what Timothy would be doing is he would be defiling himself by doing this. But Paul wants it to be seen that this isn't going to defile you, Timothy. Take care of yourself. It could also be, though, that Timothy was abstaining uh, from wine for the purposes of the sake of the gospel, and Paul wants him to see, listen, Timothy, it's, it's okay. Right? It's okay here. When we try to understand what we can learn from this verse, I think there's a couple things. First, we need to notice this. Paul says to drink a little. <laughs> that needs to be noted, okay? <laughs> uh, there is an importance of moderation in our life, really in all things. So Paul isn't here saying, Timothy, what I want you to do is only drink wine. He's not saying that. He just says, take a, take a little wine. And he's saying to drink it again for probably a stomach problem, drink it to help this stomach problem. But I also think what Paul's pointing out here is a warning against asceticism, which, is, which, which can be a severe self-discipline. That's what I'm talking about. This idea of propping oneself up to be holier than everybody else by, by some sort of, like I said, uh, discipline that others aren't doing that isn't necessarily required. And so it may be that Timothy was allowing himself to get sick just for the sake of pleasing those around him. He, did, he didn't want to come across as somebody who was going to defile himself. He, he didn't want to come across, again, for any reason that would negate the gospel or cause people not to listen to the gospel. And so Timothy was going this above and beyond for his people that was sending him to a place of real deep sickness. And Paul's warning Timothy against this. You see, I think it's very easy for us to live life this way. It's very, it's very easy, and we got to be careful because this self-discipline can all of a sudden become religion. It can oftentimes become our saving grace, which we know it can't be. Only Jesus can be our saving grace. So some people in the church, what happens to them is they beat themselves up. And the reason we beat ourselves up is we do this in a way to pay for our sin. And this beating ourselves up can come in all kinds of forms where we always look down and out. We're always talking about our shame and our guilt and our sin. And, and we do that because we always want to be reminded of it. We never want to forget about it. But we just constantly beat ourselves up over this. And it's kind of our way to be pure. And we have to be careful with that because that's not how we're called to live. Some of us struggle. We observe days that we don't need to did you know we don't we don't have to observe christmas we don't have to observe easter see on easter morning there was a lot of people here as if that was a, some special day listen easter's not a saving grace easter's a day you know that that we've chose to celebrate and there's nothing wrong with celebrating it but we have to do that in moderation some of us abstain from certain food. Some of us abstain from certain drink, thinking that because we do that, we're in some way maybe holier than everybody else. 
We've got to be careful with that. The Bible speaks so consistently that that's not the case, that that's not true. This is what the false teachers were teaching, and Paul would fight against that. You can read Galatians to see more of that. There are some of us who will wear certain types of clothes, and we don't do it because we like those clothes. We do it because we think it makes us holier. Or maybe we wear our hair a certain way. I think one that is more common amongst us here this morning is there's some of us who we won't allow ourselves to experience joy in the things of this world because we're afraid that those things in this world will stain us. And so we actually rob ourselves of the joys that God has given us within creation. But we do it to be holy as if we're obtaining another level. Again, moderation is important. Paul wants Timothy to know that it's okay to take care of yourself using what God has provided, but of course, do it in moderation. Think of medicine. There's some who are completely against medicine, and I guess that's okay, you can do that. That's not going to get you to heaven. That does not make you any holier than people like me, who I'm telling you right now. I'm not ashamed to take some Otrin or some Tylenol, especially as I get older. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to do that, and I'm not sitting up here bragging about it, because you know what? That can be took way too far as well. Something like food is good, but it easily can become sinful, can it? Sex is good, but it can become sinful. Leisure is a good thing, but it can become sinful. Work is a good thing, but it too can become sinful. That list could be a huge list that we could talk about. Moderation is very important for us as Christians, and I think that's something that we need to see in that passage here. As Timothy fights against the false teachers who are teaching a sort of self-discipline that is needed in order to please God, I think Paul is trying to hint here in this passage to push back against the false teachers a little bit, saying, Timothy, do this. Because there are those in your church who are saying, do not do this. Do it. It's fine. Take care of yourself. It's okay. Well, as we continue on in verse 24 through 25, it says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Paul finishes this section here on pastors by sharing with Timothy the truth concerning good works and sin, doesn't he? This again goes to the hastiness of hiring somebody or calling somebody to be in the ministry of your church. Paul says some sin is obvious. We all know this. There are those outside of the church who no doubt couldn't care less if they sin or not. You know that. You know those people. The way that scripture actually talks about these people in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 24 and 25 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we, we know that there are those who God has given up to their lies And they willfully sin. They don't try to hide it. They don't care about it. In fact, they parade it around. And and for those people, sin is very obvious. It's a very obvious thing to see. But then there are other people Paul talks about. He 
says some sin is hidden, but it will come out. Notice that. Some sin is hidden, but it will come out. Uh, The first one, some sin is obvious. I talked about people outside the church. This category is us in the church. Us church folk are very good at hiding our sin. Some of you aren't as good as you think. We see it. We know it. But we're very good at hiding our sin. But we need to remember, our sin will find us. God is never in the dark on your sin. Oh, your pastor might be in the dark on your sin. Your children might be in the dark on some of your sin. Your employer could be in the dark on some of your sin. Your spouse might even be in the dark on some of your sin. But you've got to know this. God is not in the dark on your sin. God never leaves you. He never forsakes you. And the Bible is very clear that our sin will find us. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We cannot hide our sin. And I hope that you will take that as a warning this morning. But then Paul says the same thing about good works. He says for some, good works are obvious. But there are others who are doing good works that nobody is going to notice. We talked about this with the widows. There are many of you probably serving with widows or caring for elderly parents or grandparents that nobody's really noticing. But it says those good works will come to light at some point. God knows what you're doing. God is pleased with what you're doing. He's thankful for what you're doing. And it will come to be known. Your name might not be flashed on the screen at any point. But it says, it will come to be known. And now when we think about this with the line of thought that Paul has been doing here with Timothy in choosing pastors, again, it it should remind us we have to be careful in doing this that it needs to take time. We cannot simply judge a book by its cover. The guy looks good, but maybe his sin isn't obvious at this point. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 16, 7 and God choosing David. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, because even, even Samuel was like, come on, look at this guy. But the Lord said to him, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've re- I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is what we have to be faithful to do as a church as we call leadership realizing that there are people among us probably who love to parade around their good works and we all see it and we instantly think these must be the people we need to choose but we have to be careful because there's plenty of people lurking in our midst who are doing great and glorious works but it's just not up front and center and so why we have to be careful is because there might be times where we are missing out on God's blessings to us within our church of people who should be leaders Because they are doing great things, we just don't know about it. And so as a church, we have to be faithful to try to give it time and hope the good works come to light, to not prejudge, to not be hasty, to not be partial, so that we can be blessed by all the people that God has brought to us as a church family. 
And so I hope that we will do that well as we continue moving on. All right, moving on to chapter 6. And we'll just do verses 1 and 2. And I'll go quickly. Paul finishes off this entire section of relationships here. Again, looking at another relationship that often makes us uncomfortable, that of the slave and the master. Paul talks about this in a lot of other places in Scripture, and he stays consistent with it. We see it in Ephesians. We see it in uh, Philemon as well. Think about those two spots. You'll notice here, Paul doesn't endorse slavery, but he also doesn't outright state that it's evil at this point. We have to, we have to notice that. We, we have to say that. Because we do, see that, we do see that here in this passage. But what Paul again is doing is he's speaking to members within the church. Remember this, and there had to be a fascinating time. There's people in the church who are slaves. That's what they are. And so Paul wants Timothy to know how slaves are to handle their relationship within the church family. And he does it in an interesting way because he tells them to honor their master. This seems so odd, but he says, in honoring your master, notice he says you are honoring the Lord in doing that. Now for us, removed from this for a very long time, and, and listen, don't, don't come to me after and say, well, you know slavery was very different then. Don't come to me with that, because that's not true. No good time to be a slave, all right? This was still horrible. Slaves were treated awful and horrible. And so we can't say that Paul was dealing with something different. No, it was still a, a horrible thing. And Paul doesn't, what's interesting is he doesn't talk to the masters and say, treat your slaves well. That's not what's being said. He goes straight to the slaves, the one who are probably sitting there thinking, I know one person I'm allowed to hate. There's one person that if God would ever give a right, it's him. It's my owner. Ah, he don't deserve anything from me. But Paul really turns that upside down, doesn't he? Because he tells, he tells these slaves to honor their master as they honor the Lord. And in so doing, what does he do? He's showing them all humans deserve honor. That's something for all of us to hear this morning. All humans deserve honor, regardless of their sin. <laughs> regardless of how bad they are. Regardless of what stances they seem to take. The Bible says they deserve honor. And the way, the way they explain it is, hey, slaves, you need to honor your master. They may have not earned this. Right? They, they haven't done anything to deserve this honor. But yet, as believers, you still give them their honor. Remember Every human being is made in the image of God. Some people abuse that greatly. Some people sin wide open out in the public. Some humans treat other humans horribly. Yet we see as Christians, we still would give that person honor. And in living this way, what does it do? Well, it helps our witness tremendously. It removes any sort of rebuke from ourselves it gives that other person no ground to come against us. The only thing they'd be able to say is good things about us because we've never done anything unkind to them because we've honored them. And Paul uses this relationship of slaves and masters as the example here. Now as we look at this whole section that we've covered from chapter 5 
really all of chapter 5 and here the first two verses of chapter 6, even though not all of verse 2 did we read. We'll cover that next time. What, What do we need to know here? So these relationships in the church, Paul, like I said, he's gone from widows to pastors to slaves, really covers the whole swath, doesn't he, of life within the church. Widows, those who just left to die. In society, no purpose, no worth. To the one who leads the church, often in the limelight of the church. To the one owned by another human. How do we treat each other as a church family? You see, the church today is full of redeemed people, but i got to remind us, our membership roles at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church are also full of unredeemed people. I'm going to guess right now as I speak to all of you, there are those of you in here this morning who you've trusted in Christ, you've been saved by his grace, no doubt, but there's others that isn't your story. You're not a Christian, you're not saved, you don't live your life for Christ in any way, but yet we all find ourselves in this room and most of us, if not all of us, would call Monroe Missionary Baptist Church our our church home. And so we have the redeemed, we have the unredeemed, we have the faithful, and we have the unfaithful. And that makes life difficult, doesn't it? It makes life difficult as a church family. And you might wonder, like myself, God, in your strength and in your might, why don't you just perfect us all? That would solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? One writer I was reading pointed this out. He pointed out the fact that God could perfect the church if he wanted to. If God really wanted to this morning, he could fully sanctify everybody in this room. Where all of a sudden we are all enlightened, we are all perfect, we are all even glorified. If he wanted to do that, that could happen this morning. And so as we sing praises to God, we could all be doing it actually perfectly with perfect motivations, perfect intent, and church service would be amazing. The after fellowship would just be fantastic because we'd all be perfect. Yet as I stand here this morning, God in his infinite wisdom, guess what? Hasn't done that. (laughs) That hasn't happened. We come together here this morning because God calls us together And we do it in an unperfect way. Yet, amazingly, God tells us in his word over and over again that it is through his church that his kingdom will come and be known. It is through us, imperfect people. It's through those of us who just can't seem to get it right. It's through those of us who walked in these doors again with the same sin that we've repented of last week, but yet now we have to repent of it again this week. We are his church. We are his people. And God uses the church for our growth personally. But also to see other people come to know him. Every time I step into this room, God uses you people, you unperfect people, to allow me to persevere in the faith yet another week. To hold to the promises and the truths that he has given us. Did you know that? He uses you in my life for that all the time. To see you persevering. 
to see you struggling but rejoicing in your struggles, to see you experiencing joys of life and the great things that God has given us. God uses that for us together. Oh, the church family can get so ugly. It can. It can get so so frustrating, and sadly, that frustration a lot of times causes people to leave, to just say, I forget the church altogether. But at the same time, and I think you guys would all agree, we also can see how glorious the church can be at times, can't we? Those times when God just seems to unite us in a way that maybe it hasn't been before, and I don't know, something just hits just right, and it's just such a good thing to be a part of the church, to understand what it really means to be a part of the church and who we are in Christ. And so as we read this section in Timothy, let those of us in the church, you and myself, let us honor God in this church by fulfilling what he's calling us to in our relationship with our church family. Let us love those who he's put us close to within our church family. Those we don't know very well in the life of the church, I'm not saying you need to get to know them well, but it doesn't mean you can't still love them, care for them, pray for them when you have that opportunity. Let us endure together. Let us come together to endure with those who struggle. Because we have people in our church who are struggling maybe we can help them. Let us continue to uplift those who are hurting. Let us spend time with those who we love spending time with. Did you know that's okay? There are people in the church family right now that you just love seeing. Could I encourage you to do something? See them. (laughs) Hang out with them. Be with them. Care for each other. There's nothing wrong with that. Find enjoyment in spending time with each other. When we walk out of this room here in a little bit, I want us to remember we have been saved by God's grace. Nothing we have done. The Bible says that as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are found to be in Christ. You're in him, I am in him. And because of that, we are not our own. I'm not my own little church here of Tim Church all by myself that can grow on my own and, and, and witness on my own and do all this stuff on my own. I cannot do it on my own. The Bible is very clear on that. I am in Christ and I am part of a family. God has made me a part of a family. And whether we like it or not, we are family. We are family together who has been brought together by Jesus Christ, who worship together in the presence of God and the presence of Jesus our Savior And as scripture says there, the elect angels and God has brought us together in all of our messiness and all of our frustration, but also in all of our uniqueness and the different talents we have, right? The different uh, good qualities that each of us have. He's, He's brought us together to be able to be the church that he wants us to be here in this town, to care for each other and to share the gospel with our lost relatives, our lost neighbors, our lost coworkers, and our lost community. You see, you and I probably would have come up with a different strategy 
when it comes to the kingdom of God, no doubt. But the strategy that God has given us is all you messed up people, I'm going to save and I'm going to put you together and it's going to work for thousands of years. And we continue that. And we continue that by God's great grace. There are times I get off the phone with somebody and I think, oh my gosh, I don't know why we don't just shut our doors. We're frustrated over this. I'll be honest with you. You want to know what's been my biggest frustration this year? That dumb baseball field outside. You want to know how many people have called me to use that field? Are fighting over that field? Are frustrated over that field? I mean, it was to the point I'm like, we got to get rid of this field. I hate this baseball field. It's causing so much dissension. You know what it is? It is a dumb, bad baseball field. It's not even a good one. I, wouldn't, I don't even want to play on it. The sun is right where you try to hit. You can't even hit the ball. It's in an awful spot. And I just think, a silly field is causing those of us in Christ to grumble and fight. What? You see, we can't let little things like that stop us. It would be wrong of me to say, you know what, let's close the doors. I'm too frustrated with you people. Because I'm sure you're frustrated with me. Right? But no, we remember, Christ has saved us. Christ has given us this church family. Christ allows us to love each other. He allows us to love those around us. And by his great grace, we've actually seen people coming to know the Lord. We've come to see people baptized. We've seen people growing in their faith. Even in the midst of our mess, God continues to work and people are cared for and people are being visited and all these different things. All by the great grace of God and he allows us to be a part of it. And so I urge us as Christ's family here at Menorah Missionary Baptist Church to keep being united in him to realize we need each other, to love each other well, and to serve him faithfully as we are called. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the word of God today. There's probably a lot of different ways to respond to the word of God this morning. For some, maybe it's just a highlight of your relationship with your church family. For others, maybe that section there where it talked about, hey, your sin will find you out. Maybe that hit a little hard today. And you need to repent of some sin. But I'm going to ask you, Wood, let's bow together. Close your eyes. And we're going to pray. And then sing one more song, all right? <clears throat> God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have put us together. God, I'm thankful that you reminded me this week that what I said there at the end, you could perfect us if you wanted to. But that is not your plan. And as I sit here and think, but wouldn't that be such a better plan? It's not. And so God, forgive me for how I try to make myself the one who should make the decisions. God, as you've laid out for us in your word how we treat each other as a church family, as you went from widows to pastors to slaves and their masters. God, you, you've covered the whole thing for us. And God, you've reminded us today that we are imperfect. We're a lot of imperfect people. And because of that, there's strife and there's struggles. But yet that is not an excuse to quit or to stop. We are an imperfect people. 
who's been saved by a perfect Savior. And his perfect blood runs through our veins and covers us. And we have his righteousness. And so God, I pray that that would draw us together and unify us more than ever. That we would love each other and care for each other and be there for one another. God, I pray that you would watch over us as a church and little strifes and and maybe little disagreements of whatever it might be between brothers and sisters in the Lord. I pray that you would help them to get over those things so that we could come together to sing your praises, to pray together, to be in your word together. God, I'm thankful for our church family. I'm thankful for how they've ministered to this community for over 85 years now and how that continues. A love for Monroe and even the surrounding towns. I'm thankful for parents and grandparents who've continued to share the gospel with their children. I'm thankful, God, that you've continued to save many of those children and they live a life for you. And God, I pray that that would continue for many, many, many more years. God, not so that we could be praised, but so that you could be high and lifted up because you are the one worthy of worship. And so God, as we close this service now, I ask that you would help us to finish by worshiping you. Help us to respond to your word however we should, but also help us to sing this last song as praise to the one who is worthy of our praise. We ask all these things now in Jesus' name, amen.